Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscape, people and heritage of the Lake District. You may immediately have spotted something slightly different. David's on an away day today. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm delighted, honoured to have been asked to accompany author, illustrator and guide for our walk today, Mark Richards. I'm Helen Millican, by the way. Um, I'm sort of known for doing the great outdoors on BBC Radio Cumbria, which is how I know. Mark and David, and I'm actually getting out into the great outdoors today. What could be better? Absolutely. It's a great honour to have you, Helen. This is the magic spot, bottom end of Malastang, and we're standing by the amazing ruins of Pendragon Castle. Wild Ball fell up to our left, and Malastang edge beyond us to the other side, with a great moat around it, uh, and the sheep grazing here quietly, and you can hear the River Eden babbling by. So it's a magical place to be. Magical is definitely the right adjective. There's a kind of a, there's some sort of an atmosphere here. You sense it straight away. Mm. It's a little bit romantic, mm. sense of the mythical. I don't know whether that's because of the name, but I think it's because of the setting as yeah. well and the ruins. Absolutely. Well, this is a place that must have meant a lot to people down the centuries. And we have a name here that you might say it's Cornish, Pendragon, other Pendragon. So we have all these links with history here. And this will have been a passage through the hills from the Eden Valley over to Garsdale and into Wensleydale. We know that Lady Anne Clifford came through this way regularly, uh, but people droving cattle will have come this way. When you get a concentrated little corridor like this, you know you're in somewhere really where people have lived and moved through and, and experienced. And where will we be moving through oh, today? Well, where will we go today? Well, we're going to go downstream. We're going with the flow. We're following the Eden, uh, heading down through Burkitt Common by Lammerside Castle and Walton Hall to Nateby. And we'll go to the lovely little town of Kirby Stephen. So all Upper Eden. Ah, this is Upper Eden, part of the extension to the Yorkshire Dales National Park, although we're very much in Cumbria, uh, the Westmoreland Dales. So we're experiencing a bit of landscape that uh, has um, uh, modern significance because we're we're protecting our landscapes and appreciating the value. And we did the most recent podcast about Tom Stevenson on the Pennine Way. And Wild Boar Fell, apparently, was his favourite mountain of all. Today... We have as our special guest, Kate Ashbrook, who is a a modern-day Tom Stevenson. She is uh, General Secretary of the Open Spaces Society. It's one of the earliest campaigning organisations that protected commons and green spaces and access to the countryside. It's lovely to be walking off the road at last and uh, we've paddled through a few puddles or puddled through a few floodles because it's been pretty wet but it's cheered up now thank goodness for that and we're onto a, a lovely surface track which is the course of the Eden Way, the Pennine Journey and Lady Anne Clifford's Way but it's truly an old track. Anyway I'm in the joyous company of Kate Ashbrook and thanks for coming. Oh, well, it's a pleasure to be here, out here in Cumbria. Just wonderful wide views and lovely day, just perfect. Now, Kate, you're well known for your admiration of the whole business of walking. How far back can you chart that in your life? 
Oh, well, right back to childhood. I would go out with the parents. I lived in Buckinghamshire and the local walks would be Burnham Beaches or Black Park and we'd go out on a Sunday afternoon and uh, play around and enjoy it. So my outdoor experience does go back a long way. I was very fortunate in my childhood. Um, I was brought up in Denham Village, only 20 miles from the centre of London, but very rural. And the fields round about uh, belonged to, to the um, council and were, were farmed and we would go out and play in the field. So I was just outside a lot and had a great freedom that I'm afraid children don't get nowadays. I was very lucky. The seeds of all this idea came in your youth, but this generated a great appetite and enthusiasm for campaigning and getting involved with the countryside in all sorts of ways. Can you expand on that a little? Um, when I was at prep school, one day I overheard a friend saying, I'm going to Dartmoor for a riding holiday at Easter. And I was a bit precocious and said, oh, can I come too? Because I was a pony-mad child. <laughs> and so, on a very important date, the 24th of April, 1965, um, I'll come back to that, I, I headed <laughs> off to Dartmoor with my friend for a riding holiday, which was the beginning of my love of Dartmoor. The date was important because it was the day that the Pennine Way was opened. Mm. I didn't know that at the time, but... That's the date it was. And so there I was on Dartmoor and I went back and back year after year because I loved the riding. And then I began to realise this place is magic. These open moors, this wilderness, this beauty. And one day, on the 26th of August 1971, we rode right the way across Dartmoor and left the ponies at a farm at the far end. And in the evening, there was a meeting in Princetown to talk about reservoirs on Dartmoor. And there'd been a threat, uh, and the Swinkham Reservoir, the year before, which had gone all the way to the House of Lords and been turned down. And so I went to this meeting and I sat at the back and I, all the farmers were saying, oh, come on, put the reservoir on Dartmoor, not on farmland. And this wonderful person called Sylvia Sayer stood up amongst them and told them what for. And I thought, oh, she is wonderful. I want to be like her. And that was a defining moment because the friend I stayed with on the farm knew her. We met the following year. And that was the start of a wonderful relationship with somebody who was 50 years older than me, but a really tough campaigner. And I learnt it all by doing it because I then went with her to public inquiries and I was sort of given the, the courage to cross-examine military people at the military inquiry into the abuse of Dartmoor. So I cross-examined the generals, you know. Yes, it was just yes. fabulous. I learnt it on the spot and it made me very courageous, probably a bit foolhardy, but it was just wonderful. There's somebody like me who writes walking guys and tiddles around. Uh, we need people like you who actually get in there and make it happen. Well, I'm we? told I'm, when I'm fighting things, oh, you're always so negative. No, I'm not, because I've saved something. You know, I've helped, I've helped well, I haven't done it myself, I've helped to save something. Mm. So that beautiful Swinkham Valley on Dartmoor is still wild and free mm. and hasn't got a horrible dam in the middle of it. Yes. And, uh, you know, there's so many places where yes. we've stopped things from happening, and that is really positive. Interesting, we've just passed a lime kiln. This proof of the limestone that are on this common here, Burkitt Common, it stretches up above us, above this track, uh, up to the horizon, there's wind whipping across there, and there's some sheep grazing high up there. This is an agricultural landscape, taking advantage of the resources to sweeten the pasture in the valley bottom. And so, so being on an open space draws me back to your comments about Dartmoor and your involvement in that kind of landscape and the fact that you felt that the fresh air and the liberty that we're experiencing here at this moment 
mattered to you at your much younger age as well. It, it really did. I just so loved being out in the wilderness on, on Dartmoor. And in fact, I went to Exeter University deliberately to be near Dartmoor, to be near Sylvia Sayre and to fight for Dartmoor. Dartmoor is, a lot of it is common land. And so I learned at a young age the importance of commons, that they have a complicated law. They're all owned by somebody. It's not Mm. as you think. Um, But the special thing is that others have rights there to graze animals or collect wood or dig peat, Mm. all in connection with their private landholding. So it's not for sale, but they're doing it for their economy. And that goes right back to the medieval times when people depended on the commons for their livelihoods. Mm. So it's rather wonderful to be standing here on Birkbeck Common in Cumbria Mm. and thinking all these commons have that common factor of being places where there are a multitude of rights and a lot of issues about management and access, all of which I've been campaigning for for the last 35 years or so. I was fortunate uh, to get the job of General Secretary of the Open Spaces Society way back in 1984, but I'd known them for some years before that because uh, Sylvia Sayer had introduced me to them and I had followed her onto the committee. So I did know quite a lot about what they did. It was wonderful and I've been doing that job ever since. So that's 35 years in the same job. And what I love doing is jumping in where other people fear to tread so we will help people where they haven't had help from from others and we will take on cases and we'll fight path changes and protect commons in ways that that you know other people don't for Mm. instance um one a really important legal victory on on quite a complex case about a common uh which was registered over a highway and the county cadorset council wanted to deregister it we said in law you can't do that they withdrew. Developers, um, Barrett's Developments, um, insisted on going on to the court, but eventually they backed down as well and paid all our costs. We've won an important case there, which will mean that local authorities won't now go around deregistering bits of highway in order to allow development. And it's not easy because the laws are not there to protect green spaces. We have to find ways of doing it, but we do our best. Say, Mark, is that Dufton Pike there? Absolutely. You just get a view of Dufton and Knock Pike, the little one to the left of it. And, and this dark shadow is on Merton Pike. And then the sunlight is on Knock Fell, uh, Great Dunfell, Little Dunfell, and Cross Fell, which is the highest, highest point. point in the Pennines. Absolutely. Yeah. Is, well, is... No, this is important to me because, oh, I, yeah. well, about 10 years ago, I did the most wonderful walk uh, in early May with a friend. And we walked from Langton Beck over to Dufton one day. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I mean, that is just amazing along Isn't the Mays Brook. And then suddenly High Cup and Nick, you know, oh, oh, it's just fabulous. And we stayed at the youth hostel in Dufton and saw red squirrels and tree sparrows. I remember that. Very good. And I got up the next morning at five o'clock in the morning <laughs> because even though I was pretty tired after that long walk, because I, I wanted to, it was just a beautiful day. And I went up Dufton Pike at that time in the morning. Amazing. And I looked down and, and the shadow of the pike, the triangle, was against the mist of the Eden Valley. And it was just... Spellbinding. A, a main, amazing. And yes. then And then we walked back that day. So that is a very, very special occasion and I treasure it. Oh, I treasure you, that memory. In a sense, you've drawn together the magic of the entire Pennine Way and it is resolved to that one little area. And, and the upper Tees Valley is gorgeous yeah. in its own right. You oh, know. wonderful. I, I got that sense that it was like being in the Hebrides up there. It's just yeah, so... and the, the pans, I mean, the wildflowers were gorgeous and we saw ring oozles, you know, wonderful bird lists because I love... 
I love bird watching. I love listening to birds as I'm walking. I don't stop and do a lot of twitching and all that, but I just love to listen and hear them. You, know, you mentioned about walking the Pennine Way. Of course, the Ramblers is what I always think about there with Tom Stevenson. You've got connections with this very much so. Oh, well, yes, I am now chair of Ramblers Great Britain, but I've been involved with the Ramblers right back since the 70s, and I've seen it grow and I've, I just love the organisation because we have the most terrific band of volunteers throughout the three nations. Um, they lead walks, they do work on the paths, they look at all the detail of the proposed path changes and will object to them when they're against the public interest. They campaign for access. So these brilliant people um, who just put their heart and soul into it, like a, like a full-time job. Mm. And, and it's... I, just think we couldn't manage without them. They mm. are just so wonderful. 20 years ago, we revived the Freedom to Roam campaign, um, which had been something that we've always wanted to have freedom to roam on open country. The 1949 National Parks Act was completely hopeless. It didn't give us that right. It just said that local authorities could make access agreements where access was challenged. None of them did. And so we, we were getting nowhere with that. And then 20 years ago, a very brilliant member of staff at the Ramblers, David Beskin, kind of revived the campaign and um, a group of us spent a lot of time drafting legislation, but it wasn't until we got a Labour government that we had a hope of implementing it because you know, it was only Labour who, who really supported it. But when eventually, in 1997, we did, we then had to push them very hard because actually Tony Blair would have wobbled given a chance, but we'd done a lot of preparatory work. And so in 2000, we got the Countryside and Rights of Way Act, which gave us the freedom to roam on land that has been mapped as open country. So. That is Mountain Moor, Heath Down and registered common land. So, you know, we certainly, here we are on, on Berkey common. common, which has the right of access. Fabulous. Um, but, it, I mean, it has its faults. And on the downland in southern England, we didn't get very much because of the way the legislation was drafted. We're still very frustrated. And there are still issues of bits of access land that you can't get into legally. You'd have to come in by helicopter or parachute or balloon uh, <laughs> in order to get there. You can't legally walk there. And that is something that we're very anxious to address. Lovely spot here, Kate. Look at that, the River Eden mm, curving away. And some Texel sheep here. Or as they originally were, Tessels. But there you go. Now, we're rambling here merrily. And uh, I I'm minded to think about the kind of people who walk nowadays. They've changed from their early perceptions of who were ramblers, the crusty oldies like myself. But the, the new generation, we want to get them into this whole business of being ramblers and being... Uh, caring about the whole process of walking. How do you get them interested in it? Well, I think uh, loads of people love to go walking. And there are 9 million people who go walking, but only about 100,000 of them are members of the Ramblers. So that's wonderful because we've got this great untapped potential. So I think we should be really upbeat about that. It is the more elderly people who are members. We certainly need to find ways of appealing more to younger people. We do have... Uh, a growing number of younger members and they form, they've formed their own groups and we've been flexible about how that happens and they have great social events and they, they you know, have really good times and they have a weekend a year when they all get together and swap ideas and have an endless number of, of walks and, and, and a few kind of workshops and talks about campaigning and footpath law and all that sort of thing. Um, I accept people campaign differently now and I'm not saying they've got to do it in the way that um, I and the other crusties have done it, you know. Mm. Um, they should do it in their own way, but we want them to do it. We absolutely want people to recognise the value of walking, that the access that they enjoy now is only because of our predecessors. Were it not for them, you'd be fighting your way through the undergrowth and not finding the paths. We won 
uh, the paths being shown on definitive maps, the official maps, and then being shown on Ordnance Survey maps. If the Ramblers hadn't won that battle, then I don't know where we'd be. Mm. So we do want people to recognise all that, our great mm. history, our proud history, but then we want them to think, how do we maintain this? And they can do it their way. You know, We're not mm. saying there's a set way of doing it. And we've seen um, younger people taking part in all sorts of protests, particularly in relation to um, climate crisis, they are certainly up for fighting for their environment and for their rights. And so please, please, young people, come and join uh, the Ramblers and fight for your rights there. Absolutely. Uh, my, one thought I had was that uh, primary schools should have, adopt a path or a, a local path and so that parents and teachers uh, could cause, year upon year, could relate to where they live, their spatial awareness and their sense of rootedness in a landscape. And that would might be where you could lead that dream on from. Yes, and do you know it happened in 1951 when um, we, the Ramblers, were having to claim all the paths for the first definitive map. Mm -hmm. And there's a record of somebody in the West Midlands who, um, a school teacher who got the children in the parish to go out and, and record the paths. So, you know, it's been done before. Let's do it again. Also, we should just mention the um, impending threat of 2026. Mm -hmm. The fact that um, on the 1st of January 2026, the law has says that the, uh, it will no longer be able to claim your rights on routes that have not been claimed by then in certain circumstances, but it's not entirely clear about those circumstances. Anyway, the message is that if there are paths that you know of that are not on the official definitive map held by the county council, it's really important to claim it before the 1st of January 2026. And that might mean going to the records office and looking at the old records, because the rule is once a highway, always a highway. Mm -hmm. So if it's shown on the enclosure award um, as a highway, even if it has never been walked, the fact is it, it is still a highway and if nothing official has happened to stop it up. Trouble is it might now be under a housing estate. So, Quite. you know, really important to, to do that work. And the Ramblers are leading the way in um, cause, it's called don't lose your way, and they are leading the way in getting that research done and getting people together to work cooperatively about getting those paths claimed. And that is a really important Critical campaign. thing. Uh, what was the pressures that meant that there had to be a deadline? Well, this was when the Countryside and Rights of Way Act was going through Parliament, and the Labour government had agreed right to roam, rather slightly limited right to roam, but they'd mm -hmm. agreed that. But the landowners um, were obviously protesting, and the government felt they had to give landowners something. So they gave them ah, what they yes. call the, the cut-off. So that, because landowners were saying, we want to be certain about the paths on our land. We don't want to, um, our members to buy a piece of land and then be told five years later that somebody is claiming a route across there mm -hmm. on the basis of 20 years use or historic evidence. So landowners wanted certainty. And indeed, we, we all want certainty. But, but we want all the paths to be on the map before it's cut off. And the Absolutely. landowners say, you know, 2026, that's long enough. At the time, it was 26 years away, and we thought, well, that, you know, that's quite a long time. So we didn't make a big, big... big well, we should have made more, I think. Um, and, the, and the minister at the time, Michael Meacher, said, well, we'll put lots of money into all this research, and the countryside agency will lead on, on doing the research. But all that came to nothing, and there certainly isn't the money. So we haven't had the money for it. No. We've got the legislation, which is meant to speed up the process for once you've got your application in, for getting it put on the map. But that, that legislation hasn't yet commenced for various reasons. Um, and Parliament has, has to sit again and, and approve a bit more, which it hasn't done. And the regulations aren't written yet. So, you know, that's, that's slipped. So 
all in all, um, it's now very near to the 1st of January. I think it's something like 2,270 days or something. If you look on the Ramblers website, they've got a countdown each day, you know, each second, actually. Um, so, you know, we've, so lo- you we've lost a few since we've Pace. been talking. Yeah, yeah. Wait, wait. So we're definitely very anxious about that and hope that we can get the date extended. The interesting thing about this campaign is it's not just about um, users, not just about walkers and riders and cyclists. It's actually about people who enjoy researching historic records. So we're involving Absolutely. women's institutes, history. Uh, his- local history societies in the work to get the map up to date. Yeah, fabulous. God, well, I get my map out here. I get, I get confused. Well, Mark, you, you've had to get your map out because that path we've just walked from which castle was it? We L- just Lammerside. Okay, Lammerside Castle was not waymarked, and that's really very poor because it isn't that obvious where the path goes. So, I shall be reporting that to Cumbria County Council or maybe the Yorkshire Dales National Park. Actually, yes, it is. Now. Yeah, it's the Yorkshire Dales National Park, which is wonderful that it's in the park. I shall report it to them because it's really important. If you find a problem when you're out walking. Uh, you should report it, because otherwise the, the authorities may not know about it. Mm-hmm. And also, you're going to make it better for the next person. Absolutely. You know, um, So people will benefit from getting those waymarks in. So I hope the park authority will act swiftly. I think they will. I reported something to them earlier this year, and they were very you know, onto it. So they're a good bunch. It's just they don't know about it, probably. No. It's got the uh, Apennine journey marked on the map oh. exactly here on this spot, so it's clearly a, an acknowledged oh. path. Well, what it is, it's because it's Wainwright's walk and Wainwright didn't like Waymarks. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've had lots of campaigns in your life, some you must be very proud of. Oh, yes. Well, I, I am actually proud that we um, won the Countryside and Rights of Way Act, giving people the right to walk on mapped open country, I would have liked more mapped open country, but it was a great step forward because it means Mm. that landowners can no longer say, get off my land if you're on the mapped bit. Um, The one I'm really specially proud of is uh, a path uh, called the Van Hoogstraten footpath in East Sussex, where um, this landowner, Nicholas Van Hoogstraten, uh, blocked the route by uh, building a barn over it and then refrigeration units uh, locked gates and a barbed wire fence, all that. So you couldn't possibly walk this route. He was very unpleasant. People were afraid of him because he threatened his tenants in, in Hove and Brighton. The local ramblers really didn't want to do anything. The police were afraid. But because I lived a long way away, it was easier in a way. Um, the ramblers took him to court and I appeared as a witness. He was found guilty, but there was nothing then in law which said he had to remove the obstructions. At that time, the Countryside and Rights of Way Act was going through Parliament, so we mm-hmm. got a Van Hoogstraten clause in there uh, on the strength of this, so that after that act was passed, it was possible, if you found someone guilty of obstruction, you could then go back to the court, and the court could rule that the obstructions should be removed or there would be a fine. And so the minute that act came in, which was the 31st of January 2001, the minute that clause took effect, I was back down there um, trying to walk the route, photographing it, and I went straight to the magistrate's court and started my own action against um, Rare Bargain, which was the company that he had formed. And uh, we had to keep going back to the court. In the end, the fines mounted to about £96,000 owed to the court. Fabulous. He wasn't going to do anything about it. Meanwhile, East Sussex County Council thought it would get round the problem by diverting the route, proposed a diversion. Uh, the Ramblers got 5,000 people to object to this, but they ignored all that and were carrying on. So then... I took East Sussex County Council to court for 
not uh, for really flouting its own policies, which were that you do not divert a path that can be reopened. Um, and this one clearly could, because the magistrates had said it could. And I ended up going to the Court of Appeal where I won. And uh, it was absolutely brilliant because that meant then that the diversion order was quashed. It didn't actually mean that the path could be reopened and the County Council was still being very iffy about it. But meanwhile, the land had gone into liquidation. The Ramblers um, knew, solicitor knew the liquidator and we managed to agree to get the path opened. The Ramblers then put in the money uh, to hire the JCB and, and all that was required. Uh, to open the path. I was able to um, actually do the opening, which was cutting a very large um, chain from around the gate and the <laughs> gate swung open and we walked through and uh, the path was then reopened. Fabulous. And uh, people have been able to walk it ever since. It's never been blocked. That is an amazing... I mean, it was very much a joint effort, but it, I took the risk of going to court, but the Ramblers were absolutely terrific and, and you know, did all, all the other bits. Yes. So between us all... We got that path open. And, you know, Van Hoogstraten had been calling Ramblers riff-raff and, and the great unwashed, he called us. So, consequently, when that campaign was going on, we had a whole-page ad advert in The Guardian and we got a whole lot of new members. There are people who joined the Ramblers on the strength of that campaign and have stayed with us. So it does show that campaigning does bring in people. It's lovely to watch the swallows just sweeping past us in a wonderful landscape. We, we, we've never lost that magic, have we, Kate? Uh, we, we were sort of at the edge of the Westmoreland Dales, part of the Yorkshire Dales National Park in Cumbria. <laughs> uh, and ahead of us, we got, uh, ooh, we're looking towards Merton Pike and the North Pennines, which is an AOMB. Both, of course, are very important designations. And national parks are something that you very close to your heart. Oh, definitely, because, of course, I started on Dartmoor, which is a national park. So I learned about national parks very early on in my life. And then uh, in my teens, I said to my parents, come on, I've got to see some other national parks. And so we, <laughs> they very kindly um, came with me because I didn't sort of do things on my own that much. Um, around the northern national parks, I came up to the, to the lakes and the Yorkshire Dales and Northumberland and the Peak District. And that was wonderful, just eye-opening. And so I just kept on with national parks. And I've been involved on the uh, Campaign for National Parks Committee since 1983. I am about to stand down at their AGM in November because they've introduced fixed terms and I have kind of done the whole thing and it's, it's time to step down but I've enjoyed being vice chair for the last couple of years and I love that organisation. It's another small charity but my gosh it's a great campaigning charity yes. and it led the campaign for the South Downs National Park which we won 10 years ago now celebrating that in November and yeah. also the extension uh, to the Lake District and Yorkshire Dales National Parks, from which we are benefiting as we stand here Absolutely. in the Yorkshire Dales extension right now. Madness that they drew that boundary along the county boundary originally and chopped the Howgills in half. So, you know, absolutely brilliant campaigns, and, and they've been very much working with other organisations. They've been spearheading that, so terrific. Cultural landscapes don't have boundaries, do they? Absolutely not, uh, no, no. That's it. We should mention the Glover Review. Uh, really? the, yeah. the Review for English Landscapes, led by Julian Glover, which is for national parks and areas of outstanding natural beauty, uh, very recently published with um, many recommendations. Some of them need legislation, some of them need policy changes, some of them need new ways of working. 
Um, there's a lot in there that's very good and it does recognise the very special landscapes of national parks and AONBs and the fact that we must protect them and treasure them. But we also have kind of failed to promote them enough and people don't really understand them well enough. Um, nature in these areas is on the decline and really shouldn't be. And people, uh, a lot of people are not getting out to enjoy them as they should. Mm. So one of the um, sort of important elements of all this is that um, every child should spend a night under the stars in, in a special landscape. Absolutely agree with that. But also uh, deprived communities, ethnic communities, um, all ought to have the opportunity. And um, the Campaign for National Parks had a wonderful project called Mosaic mm -hmm. uh, with lottery funding. It, it finished about five years ago. But they demonstrated how you can, with um, community champions in towns and cities, can then encourage people to come out and enjoy the parks and feel welcome in the parks. And uh, we need to have much more of that. It's still continuing in the Peak District. I don't think it works in other places, and it should. So that's just one element of, of diversity, really. Um, because everybody should just get this opportunity that we've got to stand on a hillside, mm. breathe in the fresh air and look across at the most mm. amazing view mm. where, you know, our history is there, um, you know, our culture. It's, it's just something that everyone should be able to do. What a great cloud looming over there, Kate. We beat, I think we're going to beat the clouds. Yeah. Thank God the rain. We had a little bit at the beginning, but we're coming to journey's end. It's been a wonderful walk. We're coming into Nateby. We're in a limestone quarry, quite a shallow one, uh, in the midst of a pasture with sheep in, and there's uh, strip lynchets over to our north of us here. Uh, it's been a fabulous little journey. I've really enjoyed yep, it. So much. Yeah, and uh, uh, I've taken you away from something to come here. Yes, yes. What was that special well, event? Walkers are welcome annual get-together, which this year was hosted by Kirby Stephen, which is one of our very best towns. I am the patron of the Walkers are Welcome Towns Network. We have about 100 towns in England, Scotland and Wales, and they all have passed the test of showing a warm welcome to walkers by having uh, circular walks, waymarked routes, good public transport connections, businesses which are signed up to welcoming walkers, um, a committee which is broadly based with uh, walkers and businesses and um, town councils all signed up and ready to work for the common cause. And every year these towns put in a report to say how they're doing and provided they continue to pass the test, they remain towns. And so we have, as I say, about a hundred of them. And Kirby Stephen um, very kindly offered to host us this year. It's a flagship town, it really. It's a flagship, it's got, yes. Yeah, it's got everything going for it, like, you know, Alston. Alston, well done. Oh, and, and, and Brampton, Brampton yes. yes. And there, there, there can be many more, if only they could pull their socks up. <laughs> yes, well, I, I think there could be many more, and they just need to recognise um, that they have great walking opportunities. I mean, towns all over the place. We have such a wonderful path network in this country that the, mm. every town will have a good network mm. roundabout. It may not be in good order, but this is the opportunity to get paths in good order because mm. the point of it is to demonstrate that having a good path network, good access, and being welcoming brings money into your local economy. People will come here and stay and spend money at the B&Bs and the pub mm. and the, uh, the outdoor shop. You know, money will be spent and the town will benefit from it. So we're, we're showing the economic benefits of walking. Yeah, Walkers are welcome towns have never been more relevant because in these times of austerity, they demonstrate the benefits to employment and they provide workers um, to help the local authorities with path maintenance. Um, in these times of uh, people being very aware of their health, we are really demonstrating 
the health benefits of walking. Mm -hmm. In these times, we've just had a state of nature report that says that the um, species numbers are declining horribly, that biodiversity is on a downward trend. We are showing people nature by taking them out from the towns and, and letting them um, benefit. And certainly here in Kirby Stephen, yesterday there was a walk to the local nature reserve. And, and fourthly, uh, in these times of climate crisis, when we've got people you know, protesting very visibly on the streets, what better thing than walking, which does not mm. put any, any pressure on the planet at mm. all? You know, that is the, the mode of transport. So walkers are welcome towns really tick all those boxes. They're right there. Yeah, they're right there. Walkers are welcome, a part of the solution. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. Talking of solutions and talking, uh, <laughs> you've been absolutely superb. I, I have quick fire questions. This is a country stride um, tradition. We are a whole year old now, but we've got a tradition. Uh, so we do ask silly questions of the guests and things like, uh, uh, what would you be your perfect Cumbrian day? Oh, well, walking from Pendragon Castle back to Kirby Stephen, of course. Uh, it's, it, it speaks for itself in strides. Uh, what would you be your favourite period in history? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, probably the prehistoric times, because I love to think of people living um, on Dartmoor in, the, in, the, in those hut circles on the side of a hill looking out you know, to, to the countryside. It's, it's just such a lovely thought, and they did it in Cumbria here as well, and, and we've got the remains of it. Well, have you a favourite beverage or food that's associated with Cumbria? Oh, well, black sheep ale is Cumbria. Yeah, black sheep. Uh, yeah, no, no, is that, is that Yorkshire? That's, that's Massam. Oh, how dear, how dear. Okay, well, let's say, we better say Cumberland sausage, hadn't we? Um, if I was to, you were to choose between Alfred Wainwright or John Ruskin, which would you go for? For, well, for what? For as a partner? Well, I don't care. You've got a lovely partner in Chris. So. I've got a lovely partner in Chris. John Ruskin, I think, would be more talkative than Alfred Wainwright. But Alfred Wainwright, I think, um, would take me to places where I'd never been. Uh, here's a dodgy one for you. Herdwick sheep or red squirrel? <gasps> oh, Herdwick's sheep. Because they, um, I think that they... they are there in the landscape and are a very important part of the landscape. The red squirrels, I haven't seen one today. You haven't shown me one. So I can't really say they're part of the landscape. No, they're jealously guarded. And uh, as a final one, if you were Prime Minister for the day, what one achievement would you like to enact on this area? Yeah, well, he probably wouldn't get, he or she, me, me, wouldn't get it through in a day. I would like to see all the money that walking saves the National Health Service put into public paths and access because it would make a huge difference. We were putting it in the wrong place. We're putting it into cure when we should be putting it into prevention. So shift it to the path network and get people out enjoying it. Fabulous. Well, you've been a wonderful guest for Country Stride and long may you champion all our causes. I hope so. Thank you, Mark. I've really enjoyed it. So here we are on Nateby Village Green, <laughs> end of the road. What a gorgeous walk that's been, Mark. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been an absolute delight. Uh, we've had great company with Kate. 
I knew I'd learn a lot from her. Campaigning zeal that uh, I, I find that fabulous. Oh, it's proper fervour. Oh, it's not, not isn't it? It's She's tireless. Fab- it's been deeply rooted in her DNA. She's been inspired by people before her. She herself is an inspiration for the future, and I think that's marvellous for us. The other thing that's been wonderful, though, is how much Kate has clearly revelled in the walk. <laughs> because she's had a big grin on her face for the vast majority of the time. Yeah, yeah. we were holding her back most of the time, weren't we? <laughs> so just to remind people, if they do want to delve back into the country stride back catalogue, um, <laughs> then previous episodes are available at countrystride.co.uk. You're also on social media. Uh, yes, at countrystride1, uh, Facebook and Twitter. And uh, we're on various platforms now, including Spotify, I believe. And, of course, you're not going to rest on your laurels because the next episode is already in the planning. Oh, absolutely. Well, uh, there's a lot of poignancy about the uh, impact of the wars on Cumbria and many places. And so we got Dr Jonathan Westway from Lancaster University who's going to talk about the impact of the two world wars on Cumbria. And we're going to climb Great Gable on Remembrance Sunday. And uh, the Felon Rock of given us permission to record the, um, the service on the summit. That would be magical. Absolutely magical. And I expect, well, the weather can be horrible. I've been up there in blizzards and I've been up there in sunshine. So the 10th of November, we'll be there. And I hope there'll be a few of you listeners there too. <laughs>